Please open the Word of God to the first epistle of Peter, if you're not there already. In our text a couple of weeks ago, we saw Peter calling the church to holiness. God's people are called out of slavery, just like the Israelites before us. We as the church are a holy people, and we are called to be holy like our God. Well, then we saw last week, Peter gave us some holy motivation for that holy kind of living, especially fear. He gave us a specific command to conduct ourselves in fear toward our Heavenly Father. Well, today Peter is going to add another specific command, a specific application of holiness, and this one has to do with love, loving one another. Peter moves from holy living to holy loving, and there's a connection here. You can't really have the one without the other. And so this morning, let's seek to know what God means when he calls us to love one another. Let's stand together and read our text as we begin here. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 22 through 25. There we read, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the Lord whose name is love, we approach you asking you to help us understand something better today about love. The love that you have for us. The love that you have called us to live and to give. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of our love problem both personally and where corporately it is necessary. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would apply your word in such a way that we can't miss what it is you are telling us. We know your word means something today. It means something to us. You desire to speak to us from what you have said. And so, Father, we claim that, and we need now your spirit to speak through your servant, through your word, and to fall upon every listener here. Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus... Amen. A social media survey revealed several reasons why there were different conflicts and fights and schisms within churches. And some of these were very interesting, certainly caught my attention. Someone shared about how there was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Another told in the survey of how there was a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. And no worries because they say this was resolved when someone, imagine this, finally gave a dime to settle the issue. Another reported a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. Someone commented, this must have been the official cabinet meeting of the church leadership. 
pun intended. This, this one really caught my attention. Arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. You know, we have fellowship potluck dinners. What type of green beans? Can you imagine? I think this one could have been solved really quickly, right? None. Just do away with the green beans. If it's going to cause problems, we'll live. Two churches, two different churches, reported fights over the type of coffee. You know, this isn't hard to imagine because there are some evangelicals that value their coffee more than they value the church. And they shared how, in one case, this church moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks blend of coffee. That created problems. In the other case, the church simply moved to a stronger blend and were told members in the church, in the latter example, left. They didn't like the coffee anymore. What ties you to the church? Where's the love? You know, all this would be comical if it wasn't true. But the sad thing is, when we hear stories like this, when we can look at a social media survey like this, is the fact that we've experienced something like this. Many of you, at least, have told stories. I've heard stories from some of you. You hear how there's fighting and division and schisms within the church over silly things, and you could add your own stories to the list. You see, the greatest tragedy confronting the church today is not that the church is at war. She must be for the sake of truth. But it's the fact that much of the church is at war with herself. And when we hear these examples, these are not Christians waging war by giving their lives nobly for the truth of God, for what is good, true, and beautiful. These are examples of wars being waged over personal preferences and opinions. And these are glimpses then of the fact that churches just like the world at large are full of selfish, sinful people. Where's the love? We say we're born again. We say we've got the Holy Spirit. We say we're being sanctified. Where is the love? We, we see this morning's text is going to address the significance of our new birth in Christ and the enduring Word of God, but really the focus is found in the singular command of this paragraph. It's found in verse 22. Love one another. That is what Peter is primarily after in this paragraph. His readers are suffering. They're feeling the heat of persecution now. They, some of them have lost their jobs. They have been ostracized from their families and friends. The state officials in certain places are increasingly hostile to Christianity. And Peter knows that love in this time, love in difficult times and difficult situations is important. It is especially needed. What kind of love is needed in the church today? What kind of love is Christ expecting of you? What kind of love is Christ commanding of you as part of His church? Well, in this text, Peter's describing the kind of love that every church needs. In verses 22 through 25, Peter gives us a recipe for the kind of love we need. So I want you to see with me three characteristics of the love we need. First, we need love that is sanctified. Love that is sanctified. We talked about what it means to be sanctified. It means to be holy. There from verses 15 and 16 of our text. But look at verse 22 now. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. What is sanctified love? A sanctified love will bear three marks. And the first mark is that sanctified love comes from a sanctified soul. 
Sanctified love comes from a sanctified soul. In verse 22, we're commanded to fervently love one another from the heart. But notice how verse 22 begins. With the ground of this command, Peter says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. He's saying, you can love in this way I'm commanding you to love since or because your soul has been purified. And it's true. The quality of your love will only be as good, it will only be as pure and healthy as the quality of your soul. It's like this. You can say, I'm going to grow apples in my backyard this year. I'm going to do that. Okay? Well, that sounds great, but if you don't have apple trees, you ain't going to get apples. Now, you might get a lot of something else, but you're not getting apples unless you have apple trees because you won't have the fruit without the root. Or you might have apple trees, like we have apple trees in our yard. We have several. And if you've been to our place anytime recently, you know there's nothing growing on those trees. There's no apples on those trees. They're real apple trees, but they're not producing apples because they're not getting the right amount of nutrients. They've not been pruned. They've not been properly groomed for the fruit, as it were. And so, Christian, you might be rooted in Christ, but perhaps you've been tolerating sin and neglecting to earnestly pursue after sanctification. If that's the case, the famine in your soul is going to adversely affect your love for Christ and for others. Jesus taught us it's the condition of the tree that affects or it is directly related to the condition of the fruit. They are directly related. They are inseparable. Matthew 7 explains. And the quality of your love will only be as pure and healthy as the quality of your soul. Now it's also true from the Word of God, your soul with all its love will only be as good and pure and healthy as the quality of your obedience to the truth. Peter says, you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. This is how we are purified. He's saying our souls are purified in obedience to the truth. Some believe this obedience to the truth Peter's referring to is obeying the gospel, such as when a sinner initially obeys the gospel by believing on Jesus Christ and is saved at the moment of salvation. Others believe this obedience to the truth is more generally the obedience that follows as a process. It is, it is obedience that follows as a result of our uh, sanctification or as a result of our salvation, but it's the process we call sanctification. Whatever the case, this much is clear. Your soul cannot be purified apart from obedience to the truth. Salvation is by grace through faith Apart from the works of the law, Romans makes that plain, Galatians make that plain, that's clear in the Word of God. But James 2.17 says, faith if it has no works is dead. And accordingly, your soul and your love, if there is no obedience, if there's no obedience to the truth, it's dead. What kind of love can you have? What kind of love life can you have to Jesus and to others if you're not obeying the truth of God? If you've not first been obedient to the truth of God by believing the gospel, have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is Christ pruning you of sin? Is the Holy Spirit going to work on you, purifying your soul? Or have you been quenching the Spirit's work in your life? If you do, that's going to affect your love life. You're not going to have a sanctified love. Because obedience to the truth is essential for growing sanctified love. If you're not obedient to the truth, but are tolerating sin, sin will kill your love. It will kill your affection for Jesus 
and for his people. Sanctified love comes from a sanctified soul. But there's a second mark of love that is sanctified. A sanctified love is a sincere love. Notice Peter calls you to love one another from the heart. He says, since you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. A sincere love. He's saying this process, the Bible calls sanctification, whereby God is chiseling away sin and and conforming us to the image of his son. This sanctification process results in a sincere love of the brethren. Now look, I know we're all a project. We're all God's piece of work, aren't we? We all need an extreme makeover, heart addition. And it's like when God saves you and and claims you as his own, he redeems you. He goes to work on you. He goes to work on us. He begins renovating our hearts, ripping out selfish habits and raising up new Christ-like habits. And boy, we feel something then we had not felt before, not prior to our salvation. What is it? It is a sincere love for God's people, for our brothers and sisters in Jesus. It wasn't there before. But we find that as our souls have been purified, they have been purified for, with the result of that we have a sincere love of the brothers. Now, you don't have a sanctified love unless it's sincere. Sanctified love is necessarily a sincere love. And actually, our word sincere comes from a couple Latin words, very interestingly, that literally mean without wax. The upper-class Romans once had a taste for Greek sculptures, particularly marble ones, and being that many of these sculptures at the time were already centuries old, many of them were very damaged. And traders ingeniously discovered that if they placed wax in the certain damaged parts of these sculptures, they could get it to look like it was completely restored. It would look like new, and they could sell it for a higher price. Well, of course, over time, that wax would harden, it would turn an ugly yellow, and uh, then you would realize that you had many inauthentic parts in your sculpture. And so the story is that vendors began to differentiate between their pure sculptures from those containing wax by marking undamaged sculptures, their pure sculptures, with these two words, sine, that is without, sira, wax. Sine sira, sincere, without wax. Guess what? Christ wants a love in his church that's without wax. He wants a sincere love. And during the apostolic era, era when Peter was writing this to the early church, it's interesting, there were some false teachers who were seeking to take advantage of what they knew was genuine Christian hospitality. And so these moochers, they were lazy, they were dishonest, they were insincere, they were hypocritical, they would pretend to be something they were not, and they would try to take advantage of the benevolence of God's people. Well, that happens today. But the Greek word Peter uses then literally means love without hypocrisy. That's what's translated sincere in our versions. It is a love without hypocrisy. He's saying don't let your love be nothing more than a mask. This is a word they would use at the Greek theater. He's saying don't let your love be a play act, something that you step into and step... It's not a costume. It's not a mask. You don't just put it on and put it off. Look, it ought to come from the heart. It ought to be genuine. Love sincerely. Yes, the church needs love, but we need a pure love, a holy love, a love that is without hypocrisy, without ulterior motives, a love that is 
sincere. A love that is sanctified comes from a sanctified soul, and it's a sincere love. But there's a third mark of love that is sanctified, namely, sanctified love is a brotherly love. A brotherly love. To his Christian readers, Peter says, you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. And he uses a word that you've all heard before, though you may have not known what it means. It's the word Philadelphia. Sound familiar? Yeah, we have a very well-known city that wears the name Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. So Philadelphia is the city, supposedly, of brotherly love. Now, interestingly, it is at least widely rumored that Philadelphia fans in sports are among America's worst fans, namely the Phillies and Eagles fans. Now, you know where my affiliation lies, but this is not an attack, okay? Whether or not that is true, I'm simply saying Philadelphia, PA, is probably better known as the city of brotherly shove than the city of brotherly love. There's nothing really authentic about the title, about the name. And you know what? We ought to wear that name proudly. We, that name ought to fit. That shoe ought to fit on this church. We ought to be a people that are known for a brotherly, sisterly love. The term here, Philadelphia, describes the closeness and camaraderie that is only natural between blood brothers. There's a brotherly or sisterly warmth to this kind of a love. And who wants to walk into a church that's as cold as a morgue? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Have you ever been there? I'll be honest with you. I have walked into churches. I've been in a lot of churches because I had different opportunities to travel And I had been at a churches that felt as cold and stiff as death. My brothers, sisters, that ought not to be the case. Who cares if we're right? Who cares if we preach the right doctrine, but we don't have love? 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says. Brothers and sisters, may that never be the case in this place. May God help us to be sincere. We're not here just for ourselves. We don't have ulterior motives. We are seeking to sincerely love brothers and sisters to show the love of Christ. Now I should add, the word Philadelphia not only says something about how we should love, but who we should love. Maybe that's more obvious. Namely, we are to love our brothers and sisters. If you read your Bible, you'll find that while God commands us to love our neighbor and even our enemy, we are to love everyone made in the image of God. That Yes, that's every human being. Yet there is a special love. It is so reiterative in the Bible. Again and again, it is a special filial love, a family-like, warm kind of brotherly, sisterly love that God expects of his covenant community. And that's what the church is today. We are a community of God's redeemed. But it can, and it will, be challenging at many times to love your brother and sister in Christ. Honestly, I probably fought more with my own brothers and sisters than I fought with anybody else growing up. And that's just a reality that when you are of the same family, you live in the same house, you live close quarters, with other selfish people just as sinful as you, you're going to have strife. You're going to have contention. There's going to be difficulties. People will wrong you. It's simply a matter of living in close quarters with other sinners. And your brothers and sisters in Christ, even in this place, will sin against you. We say there's no perfect church, right? You find a perfect church, you join it, it's no longer perfect. There is no perfect church. 
Because churches are made up of redeemed sinners. We're all a piece of work. But it's God's going to work on us. And we might think, yeah, but he is supposed to know better. She is supposed to know better. They claim to be a child of God. Well, so do you. And you need this kind of a love if you're going to forgive them and love them. As Peter will later say in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Has somebody wronged you multiple ways? They continue to do the same thing again and again and again. If you have love enough, that'll overlook all they've done to you. That's the kind of love Christ is commanding, this kind of a brotherly, sisterly, sincere love. We need love that is sanctified, pure, sincere, and brotherly. But there's a second characteristic of the love we need. And that is we need a love that is sacrificial. We need a love that is sacrificial. Notice the end of verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. What does it mean that our love is sacrificial? Well, let me point out two marks of sacrificial love. First, sacrificial love is a selfless love. And this may be a little more subtle in our English translations, but the second time the word love appears in verse 22, it's the Greek verb agapao. It's, the noun form is agape. And by the use of this certain word agapao for love, Peter's describing a certain kind of love. Of course, when we use the term love, we can mean many things by that. That word love can have many meanings in our culture. For instance, if you say, I love pizza, or I love baseball, well, we understand what you mean. We understand you to be saying you enjoy, or you get pleasure from eating pizza, or from playing baseball, watching it, or whatever. Because we derive pleasure from these things, we say that we love them. And there's nothing difficult about that or troubling about that. But when a young man says he loves a young lady, now this is a bit more complicated. Because he might mean he simply enjoys how this young lady makes him feel. He might mean he loves what she gives to him. He loves what she does for him, so that it's really about him. Now, he will say, I love her. He will say to her, I love you. And really what our culture means by this is nothing more than I love X because X makes me feel good. That's love. But this is not agape love. This is not the word that Peter uses, and it's an imperative, it's a command. This is not the selfless kind of love God is commanding. I don't want to oversimplify this, but at least to give you the general idea, agape love in the Bible describes a warm regard for the other person. It is a selfless commitment to the one you love. It's not about you. This love is selfless. It's about the one you love. It's about others. Peter would never forget that night when he and his fellow disciples were reclining at the table because it was the last night that Jesus would spend on earth before his crucifixion. And in addition to that, there were other remarkable things about it. In first century Palestine, everyone wore open shoes, you know, and they would walk in dirty roads. And so as you entered, uh, when you entered as a guest into someone's home, it was just a common token of hospitality that the slave of the household, if there was one, or at least the lowest member of the household, was expected. 
to grab a basin of water and a towel, and they were to wash your feet. They were to wipe your feet. And this was a token of hospitality. And one scholar claims that foot washing was so lowly a task, it was synonymous with slavery. Slavery was very common, of course, during the first century Roman Empire. And apparently some Jewish rabbis said this is such a demeaning task that no Jew, at least that I'm aware of, no male Jew, should defile himself with such a task. Well, apparently none of Jesus' disciples had the nerve to serve one another in this way. And so we find them here this night before Jesus' crucifixion, all reclining at the table, every guy waiting for the guy next to him to move first. And so John recounts that as Peter and company reclined at the table, Jesus rose. Jesus rises, girds himself, he grabs the towel and the basin, and he kneels down and proceeds to wash the disciples' feet. Now, this was the most humiliating humiliating of things that Jesus could do. It was the least expected of things for Jesus to do. Jesus was in pain. Jesus had the weight of the world on his shoulders. If Jesus should have been thinking about anyone, humanly speaking, it should have been himself. And it's actually no uh, unnatural phenomenon, but it's very natural that when we suffer, when we're in pain, guess who we think about first? Ourself. We can be, when we're in pain, we can be the only person on the planet for all we're concerned. But Jesus, when he's in pain, Jesus, as he's suffering and, and he's enduring now the very weight of the cross that he's about to bear, Jesus thinks about others. Jesus rises to meet a need that no one else will do. Everyone else thought they were above it, but not our Lord. Why? Why would Jesus rise from the table to do the lowliest of tasks? John tells us at the outset of the story, Jesus loved them. And he uses the verb agapao. Jesus loved them with an agape love. It was a selfless love. He didn't simply love his disciples because how they made him feel. He loved them because he had a ward regard for them. He had a selfless commitment to them. And we can't write this off as some unique situation because after this demonstration of love, guess what? Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you know what I've done to you? He says, what I've done to you, I want you to do to others. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Are you one of Jesus' disciples? Jesus is commanding selfless love from you. Jesus said, it's by this that all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, now this is agape love, one for another. This is the true mark of true Christian, uh, of true Christianity. It's love. It's worth asking yourself, are you humbling yourself to serve others? Do you only love your, your spouse or your neighbor, that other person, that somebody in the church, because of how they make you feel? Is it what they do for you? Or do you love them in this agape sense? Do you actually love them in a selfless way? Jesus isn't impressed with how other people make us feel and whether or not we use love in that expression. He's calling us to love in a sacrificial, selfless sense. Now, sacrificial love will be selfless, but to what degree? Well, Peter tells us sacrificial love is a fervent love. 
And that's the second mark of this sacrificial love. Peter says, fervently love one another from the heart. Just a few hours after demonstrating selfless commitment to his disciples by washing their feet, Jesus demonstrates the degree, the measure of his selfless commitment. In fact, even before the cross, which is the ultimate expression, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there we see him praying fervently. And here it is that his love is so fervent, it is obvious. It is physically evident. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, we read, In being in agony, Jesus, as he was praying very fervently, this is the same word, very fervently, that Peter uses to describe the kind of love we need. He says, Being in agony, Jesus was praying very fervently, and his sweat began to be like drops of blood falling down to the ground. I don't think it's a coincidence that Peter and Luke both use the same word to describe love. This love here. Jesus' love wasn't simply selfless. It was selfless to the degree of fervent self-sacrifice. Sweating drops of blood. Now, this is a rare medical uh, condition that is called hematidrosis. It occurs in uh, patients or people that that are under extreme distress. And it's very rare. But Jesus was under extreme distress. And he is in distress as he is praying fervently for our sake. Yeah, that Jesus going to the cross, that's about you. That's not about anything Jesus has done. That's about what you and I have done. But he's enduring this agony fervently for our sake and his prayer is fervent because his love is fervent. He's sweating blood and ultimately gives all his blood for the sake of his love to us because he wanted to redeem us that much. Selfless love, fervent love. This sacrificial love is selfless and fervent. And Peter's saying we as a church need a sacrificial love that isn't about just seeking pleasure from others here. I like how they make me feel kind of love. That's not agape love. That's not what Christ is commanding here. He's talking about selfless love. And guess what? It's the kind of love that's going to cost you something. It's costly. It's not easy. Selfless love that is fervent is costly. And it's deep. Notice Peter says in our text, fervently love one another from the heart. If you're going to love like this, this love is going to be sacrificial. And sacrifice means you're going to feel it. It's going to hurt. It's going to cost you. Do you love others? Do you love one another, God's people, in a sense that inconveniences you, that pains you? What does your love cost you? Have your brothers and sisters felt and received your sacrificial love? Would the world looking on the outside at your life say, there is a follower of Jesus because they bear his mark? The mark of sanctified sacrificial love. We might be tempted to think, well... I'm just not ready right now to give this kind of love uh, to others. Or I can't just, I just can't love that particular person. I can't love him. I can't love her in this particular way. And in some sense, that's absolutely right. We can't faithfully love one another with this sanctified sacrificial love, not without the supernatural work of God. And that's the third characteristic of the love we need. The love we need is supernatural. We need love that is supernatural. That is sourced in God. 
generated by God, gifted by God. After calling his readers to love one another, Peter explains in verse 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Actually, Peter is going to go on to talk more about the word of God in verses 24 and 25. So we might ask, is Peter just entirely leaving off the subject of loving one another? And really, this is the, the uh, I think really this is the million dollar question. What is Peter's connection between love and the enduring word and uh, the, the word of God? Does Peter's command to love one another fervently from a pure heart, in verse 22, does that have any connection with these statements following about the imperishable seed and the word? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you couldn't possibly love in the way that Christ has commanded you, not in a sanctified, sacrificial way, without what he is here explaining. Without this supernatural love that is both supernaturally empowered and sustained. A couple things I want you to see implications here about love that is supernatural. First, supernatural love is empowered by our new life in Christ. That is, Christ empowers our supernatural love in us by the Holy Spirit that we receive at salvation. In verse 22, actually, there's a a textual variant uh, that's missing from the earliest and best manuscripts, so that's why it's not in any modern translation. But it does appear in later Greek texts, and it's the phrase, through the Spirit. And it's included, it would read this way, you have in obedience to the truth through the Spirit purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Now, while no original, or sorry, while no modern translation acknowledges this as original to Peter's text, it's at least a true commentary. And my point is, because when we compare Scripture to Scripture, we find that it's only through the Holy Spirit that obedience to the truth and love as we ought is possible. Just look at verse 23. Here's Peter's explanation for how it is we can obey this command to love one another. He says, for you have been born again. Born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. The perishable seed Peter mentions would represent our physical birth. This would be the fact that we were all at one time born physically, and by right of that natural physical birth into this world, you received a sinful nature. It was the same sinful nature of all your parents before you. And with that sinful nature came all the effects of sin's curse. That is this perishable seed that we receive at birth. And and so our flesh is perishable. Peter will go on to compare our perishable flesh to grass in the following verses. It's just here and gone for a season. But there's another seed. It's a seed within only those that are God's redeemed. And this is the imperishable seed by which Peter says we are born again. Some think this imperishable seed is a reference to the Holy Spirit who uses the living and enduring word of God in our lives. Others believe this seed is the direct reference to the word of God itself. But the bottom line is, if you've believed the word of God, that is the gospel of Christ, God has given you new life. You have a new name. You have a new home. You have a new family, a new purpose, a new hope, a 
a new inheritance, a new power, and of course, you have a new love. Christian, when you grasp an idea of the imperishable life that you have in Christ, you won't be able to help yourself but to love. Because we have received imperishable life by the Spirit and the Word, this imperishable life can fill us with such imperishable hope that it compels our love to one another. And this is an imperishable love. So Peter's call to love one another in this sanctified and sacrificial way is no longer impossible. Not for you if you have this new life. Not for you if the supernatural Christ has moved in. In a sense now, if the supernatural Christ lives in you, supernatural love is natural to you. That's what Jesus does in his people. I can't write a prescription to give you this kind of love. You can't get this kind of love from a seminar. You can't get this kind of love from just rubbing shoulders with other people in this room that demonstrate this kind of love. You can only get this kind of love from our supernatural God. He must empower that. But Jesus' command, be encouraged, to his people is love one another even as I have loved you. Here's why Jesus commanded that. Because he lives in you if you're one of his people. You can do that. He will empower you to do so. So supernatural love is empowered by our new life in Christ. But lastly, from verses 24 and 25, supernatural love will endure. It is sustained and it will endure just as sure as God's eternal word. Verse 24 reads, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. Grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Peter cites here from Isaiah 40. And this is fascinating to me that Peter chose this text, of all texts in particular. Why did he choose Isaiah 40? Well, if you study the book of Isaiah, you'll learn that Isaiah 40 comes on the heels of some very troubling news. In Isaiah 39, verse 6, following King Hezekiah's sin, God sends word to his people, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all your fathers, all that they've laid up in store to this day, will be carried away to Babylon and nothing will be left. It's all going to be gone. All your life, all your glory, everything you've lived to this point in the kingdom of Israel, it's going to be wiped away, says the Lord. So following this troubling news, Isaiah 40, is really God's word of comfort. There's actually Messianic prophecy. It's a great text. But we get to the, the portion Peter's citing. It's a word of comfort to all who will put their trust in God. Isaiah's audience was troubled by the news. They were destined to become exiles. The material things they loved were to be liquidated. They were going to be coming to nothing more than ruin. But God wanted them to remember that while their lives were only for a moment of time, His word, and hence His love, His faithfulness, would endure forever. It's no coincidence Peter has addressed his Christian readers as pilgrim exiles. We are a people living in a strange land. We are citizens of another country, Hebrews tells us. Peter has used this language for us, same language that was used of the Jewish exiles scattered throughout the ancient empire. And we, like them, are awaiting another kingdom. We look to a heavenly home. So like Peter's original readers before us, we too are sojourners on this earth. We're pilgrims. Peter's just reminded us in verse 17, we've only got a limited time of stay on this earth. And during this short time of stay, 
it can be so easy, right? It can be so easy to set our eyes and ambitions on all these material things, all the glories this world has to offer. But as soon as autumn comes, all the flowers of the garden, even the the glory of these beautiful flowers, fade away. And they become nothing more than a past season's memory. We forget about it. We plant new flowers and so on. We move on. All the world's vanities will soon fade away, he's saying, as a flower of the grass. But, verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It is God. It is what he has said. It is his promise to his people that remains. And this is the word, Peter says, which was preached to you, to Christian readers, to us by extension. Have you received the word of God? By receiving the eternal promise of God, you enter into God's eternal community. God's eternal seed lives within you. So that while God's word is eternal, and just as God is eternal, you will live eternally. Jesus said, because I live, you live. You are born again to a living hope. These verses communicate an eternal and enduring hope. And it's by right of the fact that we have received the word of God. So our love is grounded in something eternal. In 1772, John Fawcett, who was pastoring a poor congregation in the countryside of England, received an invitation to come and pastor a well-established church in London. And this church offered John a much better salary and prestige, and there were many exciting opportunities. And so the Fawcett's accepted They packed up their belongings and they began saying their farewells to the teary-eyed congregation. Many people that were saved during their ministry, their time there, several years. And they become family with these people, as it were. And as they were saying their farewell through many tears, it was at this time that John's wife, Mary, said to John, I just can't do it. I can't stand it, John. I know not how to go on. And John responded, Lord, help me, Mary. Nor can I stand it. He said, let's unpack the wagon. And then he declared to the crowd, we've changed our minds. We're going to stay. A scene of pandemonium ensued as the crowd broke into cheering. And John Fawcett would go on to remain at that church for the rest of his life. He would pastor the church for a total of 54 years. In fact, this this moment, this this time of love and unity in his church would inspire him to write the well-known words of the hymn, Blessed Be the Tide That Binds. It's an old hymn about Christian love and unity that transcends time and space because our love will endure because the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, the salvation, the eternal community of which we are a part will endure. I can assure you that whatever love we experience in this side of life. And the love that we witness between a man like John Fawcett and his wife and their congregation, inseparable, a love that binds, will even be sweeter still. It will be a love sweeter still when Christ returns as we dwell in God's eternal dwelling. What a thought. 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us love endures forever. It's true. If you're talking about Christian love, we're going to focus our attention more on on our attitude toward the Word of God, and we're going to see more of that. Peter's going to deal with that next week. But this week, we've seen a singular command. 
from this text. Love one another. This church needs love. Not just any love. We need the kind of love that God has prescribed here in his word. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This is a sanctified, sacrificial, supernatural kind of love. According to Jesus, love is the primary marker of a true believer. This is how the non-believing world will recognize us as Christ's people. The world needs to see and receive this kind of love from you if you're one of His. Why are we calling on others to believe Jesus loves them if we can't show this love to one another? If you call yourself a Christian, if you've, but maybe you've got a love problem, you say, I'm not living here, I'm not experiencing this, I'm not giving this love, then for the sake of Christ, go and make it right. Get it right. This is important. If you don't know where you stand with Christ, I'd invite you to approach myself or another brother or sister here that loves the Lord and, uh, and let us invite you uh, to know and embrace the one whose name is love. Let's pray.